Welcome to Have You Seen This, the world's only podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten visual media. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Jen. And Tim. And we have a special guest tonight with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez rekindling their romance. What? I said to Tim, I said to Tim, there's somebody that we have to have on the show. And Tim was like, of course. And I, and you all know that I am, of course, talking about the man who wrote the screenplay for Gili, Josh Olson. Um, Josh, welcome back to the show. I, I think there's, I think there's been a miscommunication here. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wrote Gigli and all of the Resident Evil movies. I'm, I'm literally I'm sitting here going, where the fuck is she going with this? You and me both. <laughs> Who told her that like J Lo and I dated for years? I'm so I did. I but that was we kept it very much at the down low because she was. Uh, I was kind of embarrassed to be seen with her in public. So. Oh right, and then so you I were thought, the one who introduced her to Martin Brest. I get it. That's right. No, I, I've had Speaking I've had nothing breast. to do with any of those people or that movie. I, <laughs> It's a terrible <laughs> thing to say. Not. You shouldn't. By the way, just let me tell you, as a, uh, uh, I think of myself as an experienced podcaster now, wait until the show's over to say terrible things about the guest. No, I prefer to just roast you while you're here because it's funny and I like doing it. Fine. Fine. Because otherwise it's just going to be Tim verbally abusing me and, you know, there's got to be a balance. So, yeah, know. I roast Jen. Jen roasts the guests. It's a circle of life. <laughs> yeah, it's a vicious circle. It's, um, you know, we're, we're just acting out the trauma that we experience and you know it it goes on but oh hey speaking of israel sorry (laughs) (laughs) zing bad bad day for trauma uh yeah very bad but um gosh how can i segue from (laughs) josh you brought us a fun one um a cult classic um Maybe to some people, a movie that is misbegotten, but to others, a movie which is a lot of fun. And I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about it. And I'm dying to know what Tim thought of it. Um, <laughs> do you want to tell us uh, what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about a movie that I first saw, God, I think I saw in bits and pieces uh, as a kid. Um, not on TV, maybe on VHS. I remember finally seeing it for real during my brief tenure in college at a screening. And um, I used to, like a lot of people, I used to subscribe to the whole it's so bad, it's good notion, which I now reject outright because if a movie's entertaining, it's entertaining. Who gives a shit what the intentions were? But even even if I were still buying into that, I've realized as I, maybe around the 14th time I saw this film, uh, I realized that this movie is not so bad, it's good. I, this movie is a flat-out fucking and I'm not, I'm not like why split hair. I'm not bringing the irony here either. Uh, we're talking about uh, Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert's masterpiece, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is just one of the greatest Gonzo movies ever made, flat out, never been topped. It is definitely a, a balls out movie, or maybe I should say a tits out movie. Yeah, um, the jokes write themselves with Russ Meyer, that's for sure. <laughs> um, as I understand it, um, 
not just one, but two breast men, uh, Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert. Apparently, yeah. But I mean, there, there's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's Russ Meyer and there's everybody else. There, there are. Yeah, uh, Russ Meyer is kind of the breast man to end all breast is, men. Yeah, he is the god. I mean, imagine that, though. Just imagine that there is a part of anatomy that your name will forever be linked to. That every time anybody <laughs> who loves movies thinks of boobs, Russ Meyer has to be floating around in their head somewhere. What does it say about me that I think I share the same taste in women as Russ Meyer? See, that you're 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 aces. That you're top notch person. Because <laughs> goddamn, yeah. the broads in this movie. Yeah. Let me tell you. Yes. They are choice. They are. They are. <laughs> he he had an eye for the ladies, and uh, and he had a weird, you know, the thing. And we're going to be talking about this film, and this is a movie. There are absolutely. I don't know, this movie's so over the top that anybody who takes it seriously enough to be offended by it just needs to fuck off. It's, it is just this radical slap in the face of everything that was perceived to be sort of, you know, stodgy and decent in, in, in America in 1970. And it's so fun. And in his own way, I have to say, in his own metier, if you will, uh, Russ Meyer loved and respected women. And you have to take it in the context of who he was at the time he lived it, because obviously he made lots of movies about, you know, women with gigantic gazongas running around in flimsy outfits or less. But, you know, those women are almost always, especially if you go back to his other films, they're almost always kicking the living shit out of a bunch of just absolutely lunk-headed men, which is, I understand, a very simplistic kind of feminism. But in 1960, softcore porn, that's like, you know, Pretty serious shit. He was. Uh... There's, there's a direct line from Russ Meyer to Lars von Trier. Ooh. Both, <laughs> both have a men are trash philosophy. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, I, I kind of doesn't Lars von Trier think everybody's trash? So I think that. Yeah, sure, but it's, but men in particular. Mm. I think um, Tim and I talked about this on our um, big uh, Antichrist episode um, because. Um, Love that movie. I mean. Yeah, uh, Tim is not exactly a fan of Von Trier, but has respect for his work, and I have I've yeah, he, consistently been an apologist for Von Trier, let me put it that way. Yeah, he, he can tend towards being kind of an edgelord some of the time. Yep, yep, but, yeah. you, know, you know, but he's invested in it. He's not, it's not a part-time job with him. Well, like Von Trier, you can't say that Russ Meyer does things by halves. Correct. And way. also like, and I, um, I say this to somebody who actually, I do, I think Montreux is a brilliant filmmaker. Um, uh, there's no question at all. You never are watching a Russ Meyer film and wondering if it's a put on. It's this, <laughs> this is a guy. And I remember a friend of mine saying this to me once when I was, when I was young, sort of starting out, he was like, if you could just have a career where all you get to do is make movies where you just throw everything you love into them, would there be a better life? And that's, that's what Russ did. Like none of his films are compromised. None of them, None of them are an attempt to pander to somebody else. He made movies for himself. It's kind of the same uh, idea that we had talking about Ted V. Michaels in our previous episode. Just That's like, exactly yeah, what a, who I thought of, yeah. Yeah, what a life. I mean, sure. just, you know, do, do what you want. Like, you know, create movies that are stuff that you think is cool. And, you know, more power to you. Yeah, yeah like, I would say that Meyer is a, um, and with no disrespect to to Ted Michaels, um, <laughs> I would say that Meyer is maybe like a more um, skilled and technically oh yeah apt no he was an artist maker. he was also massively successful which Ted, Ted I mean Ted yeah. is successful enough to get to keep making movies but 
you know, Russ radicalized yeah. an entire genre. He made a fortune doing so. I mean, literally the reason he got to do Beyond the Mountain of Dolls is because his low-budget softcore porn movies had made so much fucking money. The studios were like, we need to tap into this. I mean, they were a phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. And and to be to be clear, to people who have never seen any of this stuff, I think they know what we're talking about. It's like, yeah, there are a lot of big boobs in them, but take them out. And there's still this, like, gonzo out, bonkers. Right. <laughs> hey, this, this, not at all of them. Yeah, check out, like, uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, no nudity. <laughs> um, but even absent that appeal, they're incredibly well shot. He was, an, he was a mm-hmm. photographer beforehand. He was a great photographer. They're incredibly well directed. And he was a radical editor. I, I've always maintained that if his fetish was knees instead of boobs, he'd get a lot more respect as a filmmaker. Because, you know, no no Russ Meyer, he was a none of that like MTV Tarantino. school of filmmaking that came along afterwards, the fast coming, he just, you know, Michael Bay is like, you know, hanging out down in front of my coffee shop begging for quarters with no Russ Meyer. And, uh, I mean, he was just, he was an incredibly influential filmmaker. And he got dissed. Yeah, that was something, no, no, yeah, so, something that I noticed about, yeah, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, like, it, there's a cut on, like, every line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the editing is wild in this movie. Just like every single thing about the rest of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but maybe it, it's it, something... It doesn't stay on the shot long enough to like bore you with it. It's like on to the next thing, on to yeah. the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this might be one that uh, we'll have to set up a little bit for... For sure. For, uh, you know, younger viewers or people who kind of aren't familiar with that 60s milieu. And I'm actually, like, really excited to get into it because there's, like, so much to unpack. Um, and to that end, I was looking at the movie uh, which spawned Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, the original Valley of the Dolls. Ugh, terrible. Uh, earlier today. Yeah, it's it's complete trash. Not, yeah. But, and as they say at the um, beginning of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, this movie has no... Although it started yeah. as a sequel. But in a way... Um, that movie really informed the making of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because it's so indicative of how just sclerotic the film industry had become in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, when people think about, like, classic films, like, you know, films from uh, the 70s and before, like, there's a tendency to think of... Um, you know, just like you do with any, like, you know, historical thing is like you think like, oh, you know, things were better in the good old days. But Hollywood has been turning out crap since, like, the beginning of filmmaking. And if you kind of look through a lot of the studio product from the 60s, there's a reason that the, the second golden age of Hollywood, the new Hollywood, had to happen in the 70s because the movies were bloated trash yep. just complete lumbering just just complete garbage and um you know the original valley of the dolls while it has like some camp value um i have to say like i was laughing my ass off at the scene where patty duke tears the wig off susan hayward's head and flushes it down the toilet um just looking at these movies you think like god like they're just selling like garbage to idiots uh, yeah, I wouldn't go, but yeah, they were they were flailing. Does that work? They were flailing. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. Have you seen a movie these days? The um, yeah, they they were they were definitely flailing, and and uh, there was this whole sort of youth explosion going on that they were trying to capitalize on and couldn't figure out that you know people like Roger Corman were were all over. You know, mm-hmm. um, Corman, yeah. Corman of course and, um, made all those biker films, and he makes the trip, which immediately leads into which is a movie, by the way. I never know who knows what it's a. 
Bruce Dern and Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda mm-hmm. movie about a guy who does acid. That's literally it. And the movie was such a smash hit. It, it paved the way for what came after, which was Easy Rider. Um, and that Easy Rider just blew the, these people's minds. It was like, here's a movie by these hairball drug addicts that made more money than, you know, the, the, the Dr. Doolittle and uh, Cleopatra combined. What are we going to do? And the nice thing is, because what you've got now is you've got everything is so, you know, they have apps to figure out how a movie's going to do and what's going to sell and all the rest of this. They didn't then. They were just like, fuck, I don't know. Maybe they know something we don't. And they just sort of opened the door for a few years to these maniacs. And most of them were younger. I mean, the fact that an old fart, I mean, Russ Meyer was a World War II veteran. The fact that he managed to climb in and make a movie that I would argue is more radical than most of the movies that those hairballs were making, you know, uh, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. him as a practice filmmaker rather than just being, like, a hot spark yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the really, the very interesting thing about um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you know, which came out in 1970 right on the cusp of that new Hollywood, it's kind of amazing that it was made with studio money. Unreal. Because it is not in any way a studio picture. And it was interesting to, I mean, I, I didn't really watch the whole thing. I scrubbed through it on YouTube. <laughs> but, you know, looking at Valley of the Dolls. Oh, 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 God, I thought, sorry, sorry. I thought you were, okay, okay. God, I was having a heart attack. You didn't watch all of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 I watched, I watched every, I watched, yes. I watched every nipple <laughs> Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Um, but, you know, kind of scrubbing through Valley of the Dolls, um, it's amazing how kind of stodgy and hidebound it seems. It came out in 1967, like the <laughs> summer of love, when there were all these radical upheavals mm-hmm. in the culture. And, you know, the kids were marching in the street and, you know, blowing their minds on drugs and stuff like that. And then you look at a movie like Valley of the Dolls, which does deal with drugs, but it's about, you know, people. They will destroy taking... you. Yeah, like, people taking pills to, like, you know, get through their day. It's, like, a very mother's little helper kind of thing. And it's sorted, but it's not, it's so disconnected from, like, the youth culture of the time. Because it's, you know, it's just these, like, studio hacks being like, okay, well, we bought this novel, which sold, like, several million copies. And, you know, we're just going to kind of vomit it out on the screen. And it did make money, but it's not, like, it's not the thing that people remember the way that they remember Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because like the you know Meyer and Ebert's film was just such a radical statement and you know Valley of the Dolls is just like you know like as you like you can imagine like the executives at the studio just like being completely confounded by the youth culture at the time and I don't I think that's hard for people to realize now like how much of the of a generation gap there truly was like it was just like a yawning chasm in it would be like if he released tiktok the movie yeah <laughs> <laughs> but no it's true that and that thing has been blurred i mean obviously there are still distinct you know uh, barriers between sure. generations of but, course. but you know for most of my adult life uh you know gr- grown-ups have clung to youth in a way that they didn't back in the 60s and 70s you know it's like the studios are full of People who are older than me, who are, yeah, you know, who have TikTok accounts and, you know, are just trying to keep up and they do Instagram and they're listening to all the music that all the kids are into. And they're sort of, but back then that was an alien concept. It was like, these kids will grow out of it. They'll turn into me. They'll start drinking bourbon and then they'll like my movies. And Yeah. And, like the, 
the young people yeah, it's, were... it's not me who's wrong, it's the children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the young people were really seen as a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that's not to say that that hasn't carried through till today. I mean, it's like you just look at how, like, the consistent... Uh, conservative moral panic is about, you know, what those damn kids are doing on those damn Bolshevik college campuses. Right. But, you know, especially, like, at the time of Valley of the Dolls and its, its quote-unquote sequel, like, you know, the they were really asking themselves, like, what has happened to the youth of America? Like, we don't even recognize these people. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like Ebert and Meyer kind of gave the studio, like, a taste of the youth culture, but they sure as fuck didn't under understand it i mean the suits i mean yeah they were were like what the hell did you give us yeah and i think because ebert you know knew his way around a bit you know this scene a little bit um and uh yeah because it's 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 also one of the things i love about this film it's part of a small cadre of movies i mean there's there's a uh austin powers quotes it directly there's this scene in i think the second one where he goes it's my happening and it freaks me out and I'm sitting there in the theater going, hey, this movie's pretty fun. And then he says that. And I'm just like, yes, I found my tribe. But Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, um, the president's analyst is another. There's one or two others that transcribe 60s that never really existed but should have. That's just like technicolor and just bonkers and beautiful and a lot of bright colors. And, you know, and uh, a distilled sort of ideal of what. Yeah what people were presenting yeah and i think while while the studios were saying we need, we need to capture what's going on with these kids and show it to them and ebert and meyer are going fuck that let's show them what they want to see let's show them the world they want to live in you know which is mm. uh yeah yeah i mean just yeah, yeah a, a guy who talks in like shakespearean prose constantly yes oh yes <laughs> yeah um, i vow it ere this night does wane you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance <laughs> please tell your listeners i'm not reading off anything i can do that all night <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. No, um, God, Z-Man has real theater kid energy, doesn't he? I really wanted to punch the guy for that reason, but, um, actually, I'm told He's got that, a good look. I'm told that he was based on Phil Spector, um... <laughs> well, yeah, there's a little bit of, like, right he's, out of my he's mouth. the teen prince of pop, so that's sort of implied in the thing. Although he's... Yeah, now... Yeah. Well, like, the guy waving a gun around at a party? Like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, amazingly, yeah. And then he does sort of predict Phil, Phil Spector down the line, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, and I, I absolutely wanted to bring that up because... Oh, my God, you know what? I've never... This is the thing when you live with a movie so long, it's never occurred. But you're right. He is clearly inspired by Phil Spector. And he starts murdering yeah. his own guests decades before Phil Spector did, as far as we know. And now yeah, I've ruined the ending of the film. I'm sorry. But believe me, there's no way to ruin this <laughs> No, film. this is... Can we promise not is... to talk about the big revelation, though? Or is that... No, this is this is the this is the spoiler heavy podcast. Okay. Our uh. listeners are big boys and girls and NBs. Like if they if they don't want to be spoiled, then they can like look at the fucking title of the episode and be like, hey, maybe I'll wait to listen to this until after I've seen the movie. Um, or do so I would now. please please do that. We had a friend. I showed it a couple weeks ago. A bunch of friends and, and one of my one of my friends um, had had to leave about two thirds of the way through because she was having a really bad migraine. And, and uh, so much respect for her. She feels it coming on. She's like, I need to leave. And she takes off. Her boyfriend stays. Everything's fine. I was like, that's that's very mature. And she ended up watching the movie the next day. And I think it blew her mind. Because when she left, you know, she was an hour and 10 minutes into the film. And as crazy as it is, she's like, okay, I sort of know what this is. I sort of know what's going. And then you watch the end of the film and you're like, 
what the fuck? You cannot. You cannot. There are so many movies. You know, I don't want to ruin the next James Bond movie, but come on. He wins. We know this. There's so many movies you see where you're kind of like, you know, there's going to be some surprises, but you know it's going to work out or you know where it's going to go. You cannot call the ending of Beyond the... They even show you the end of Beyond the Valley of Dolls in the first minute and you still can't tell where it's going to go. (laughs) No, that's true. Like, it was something that uh, my friend Blake always said is that, you know, because he was so good at predicting where a movie would go. And in my 20s, this used to astound me, but he told me, he was like, look, you know, and this was a guy who saw, like, several movies a week, every week. And he's like, look, you see enough of these movies, like, you start to be able to... Yeah. You, know, know where you start going, to learn yeah. all the tricks, you yes. know? And as I got older, I was like, oh, like, he was right. You know, it's like, as you get familiar with the medium, like, you know, you start to see what things like, um, if you'll forgive me for saying so, Josh, what, what tricks uh, and tropes screenwriters lean on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to yeah. find... A movie that, uh, you know, can really surprise you is delightful. Yeah. Yeah, for better or worse. It's like a lot of the time they'll just sort of casually toss something off in the beginning of the movie. And you're like, that's going to come around. Right. Later and, and be mm-hmm. Well, to, to be fair, I should I should lay you know, the, the reason one of the reasons the ending of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls works is that they just pull it out of their ass at the last <laughs> There's no <laughs> setting up the revelations at the end. It's just like completely out of left field. But nonetheless. <laughs> well, by the way, no. And, and yeah, yeah, that um, seems a lot like a lot of the like appeal of this um, counterculture or exploitation movie is that it does like take you well into the weeds. It, it goes off the rails, but then it just like it allows you to indulge these uh, like really outsider notions and then pulls it back onto the straight and narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, That's Beyond funny. the Valley of the Dolls does, but in such a depraved and hilarious way with that incredible epilogue at the end where. You know, the crippled guy starts walking again and everybody gets married and you're playing the sappy yeah. soap opera music. And it's like, you know, the guy lecturing you at the end about, you know, all you need is love. It's so, such an over the top version of that that it ends up completely mm-hmm. undermining it at the same time, which I love. Right. Yeah. But um, going back to Phil Spector, um, this like I would say that it uh, that um, it was a happening that that freaked me out but it did give me pause to see z-man push a gun into the mouth mm-hmm. of a woman in pretty much the same way phil specter did it to lana clarkson i mean lana wasn't trying she wasn't sleeping at the time she was trying to leave his fucking house but it's pretty much the same thing Ooh. um and yes uh, like you know, life uh, imitates art and yeah, like Z-Man was sort of nominally based on on Phil Spector. Like I don't, Meyer and Ebert admitted that they had never met the guy, but they had heard stories about him because yeah. Phil Spector was the kind of guy that you heard stories about. Yeah. Um, and people who did know Spector said, like, yeah, you know, you pretty much captured his essence with that <laughs> character. <laughs> that, that I didn't know, so, but that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, no. Um, so and I know the actor, the sad thing, I believe John Lazar, the actor, uh, for years was miffed with Meyer and I did he try I don't want to say he sued him and be wrong but there, there was at least talk of a lawsuit because he uh, he felt that Meyer had destroyed his career which really yeah and uh, um, I, I can see his point because he didn't get a lot of kind of quote unquote straight work um, in sort of mainstream films but good mm-hmm. God you know you come to the end of your life you look back and you're like I was fucking Z-Man I'm like yeah you know 
Yeah, because I was going to say, like, that, um, that role immortalized him, yeah. in a way, because it's such an, it's such yeah. an indelible role, and performance that it's yeah. like well you know if you got to be defined by something like it might as well be that but um uh yeah you don't see jay davies in a lot of movies either but i, I think <laughs> i think when it's happening it's not you know it's a little tougher you get you know. well yeah like um i think you need like time and distance yes. but um i don't know have we set up beyond the valley of dolls for, <laughs> no for our listeners um i mentioned <laughs> It's because I don't was... want anyone listening to this without having seen it already. That's, that's I'm gonna be so upset if somebody. <laughs> now you're you all heard you all heard the man like if you're if you're indulging in spoilers before the appropriate time you're gonna upset Josh very much. So we recommend we don't usually but we recommend that you check out the movie before you listen really to this. Do, so, yeah. but to that end, um, the movie is nominally a sequel to uh, the movie Davidson. based on. I know who you meant, Tim. Um, yeah. The movie is uh, nominally a sequel nope. to... Nope. Well, they open with it. No, I have I'm to... Because if, if one person that. hears that, I'm it goes, now that. I have to see Valiant. No, no. It opens with a disclaimer. No, 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 no. Yeah, will I not know what's going <laughs> yeah, on? Yeah, no. Trust me. Don't see <laughs> okay. Valiant at all. Don't listen to this woman. No, I'm She's deranged. getting to that. I'm getting to that. <laughs> She's doing you harm. Um, this is a bad podcast. This... You need to be stopped. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you get for saying i wrote geely i'm like <laughs> gloves off man we're doing it we're doing it wow you weren't as upset when you, when uh, i said that you wrote all the resident evil movies but um uh <laughs> a successful franchise jen come That's on right. as i was saying yeah. um beyond the valley of the dolls is really a sequel in name only Bang. to the movie based on jacqueline suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. Um, just to give you guys the short version, uh, Valley of the Dolls was a incredibly best-selling novel at the time. Um, they, it's a trashy book that they made a trashy movie out of, and because it was successful, uh, 20th Century Fox said, let's make a sequel to it. Now, there was some kind of... Uh, there was Did some they put it a specific way, Jen? Um... Uh, you might be what? getting a little ahead of me, but actually, um, get ahead of me, please. Say what you were going to say. No, I'm just trying to shoehorn a, a tortured mystery science theater joke into it. Oh, well, then put a buck in the swear jar. Um, <laughs> All right, go on. <laughs> um, there was some kind of a snafu with the creation of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, where I believe um, Jacqueline Suzanne herself had actually like written a script for it but the studio yeah, rejected it right right and maybe maybe josh can tell us <clears throat> like how the screenplay for what we got uh came about yeah I, I don't remember i used to be much more intimately familiar with all those details i don't remember how it came about that that uh, they didn't end up making an actual sequel but, um, and I don't remember, uh, this is terrible. I'm a terrible guest. I can't remember how Meyer and Ebert <laughs> got to know each other. I think Ebert had written some complimentary reviews of, uh, Meyer's earlier work. And by the way, if you haven't seen Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, you, you have to. Uh, I also have a very soft spot for, uh, he did a movie called Mud Honey, um, which is sort of, uh, his attempt at a kind of Faulknerian melodrama, which is just amazing. Um, a lot of other films. <laughs> any, any opinion on Super Vixens? Uh, oh, I love Super Vixens. I actually, I actually saw, when I was a kid, I saw Super Vixens 
in in uh, the same movie theater that um, David Naughton turns into a werewolf in at the end of American Werewolf in London. And every time I it's, see that that movie, I have fond thoughts of seeing Super. It was Super Vixen and Black Snake, which is Russ Meyer's one unwatchable movie. No, that's not true. Seven Minutes is also terrible. Um, but yes, yeah, Seven Minutes, which followed um, the success of Beyond the. That was his next film, studio film, which, and it's just it's a trial movie, and it's so fucking boring. You can't believe the same filmmaker made it. Yeah, and um, in spite of the success of Beyond the Valley seven of the minutes, Dolls... Seven minutes, but it feels much longer. <laughs> it is not seven yeah. minutes in heaven. Um, in spite of the success of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the studio was kind of upset with what they ended up with, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, well, and yeah. so Russ Meyer's uh, career as a studio filmmaker was uh, not not a long it's not one. for him well it wasn't it no, wasn't but, really a hit either or was it or am i it it, it uh it, it did okay it was not a it was not a great success uh, my i mean a, yeah it, it's a counterculture cult movie i wouldn't consider that a yeah well, i think that going off the box office yeah. returns it made more than its money back oh, did it? okay but um i don't think people would say i don't think you could say that um you know in the parlance of the time that people really grocked it yes Oh, oh good, 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 good one there, good one there. It was uh it was definitely one of the movies made for. Have you seen this? Because right. um, like people, you know, people didn't really dig it at the time. Um, but it, it its reputation grew as the years went on. But um, how do we want to? Do we want to even try to describe the plot? <laughs> the adults? You can. <laughs> um. I mean, it is kind of a, a funhouse mirror inversion of the plot of Valley of the Dolls, in which it's young women um, entering the um, a creative industry and finding um, uh, delights and depravity. Um, but while uh, you know, while Valley of the Dolls is kind of just a, a you know a soapy it's, it's girl in gold boots. Yeah. Yeah, like Girl in Gold Boots made by, you know, as we said, like um, right, right, yeah. being a better filmmaker than, than Ted Michaels. They also ran, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's really just kind of like a phantasmagoria of the counterculture, but there's this satirical thread running through it, you know, kind of provided by, by Ebert's script, which makes it really stand out from a lot of the, yeah. you know, kind of the, the lurid trash of the time. Yeah, and, and Do you let's think be. That's accurate, Josh? Yeah, I think so. And and I apologize. I really am. That's terrible. I, I, I used to know all this stuff. I, I just like, yeah, it was a hit. It was a hit. Um, Ebert is such a good writer. You know, it's. Um, I, I hate to speak ill of. I mean, I thought he was. He was a. He was an all right film critic in print. He uh, the TV right. show he did, especially in the early years, was incredibly important. Um, in terms of like, they used to uh, spotlight a lot of. Uh, smaller independent filmmakers. I know like Wayne Wang, John Sales, these are all people whose careers were mm-hmm. massively helped by these guys going on TV and hyping their first movies. Um, and and there's nothing, I mean, uh, he was obviously a lovely person. Uh, and, and I gotta say, shortly shortly before he died, he, uh, he tweeted out um, my article, I will not read your fucking script. So he'll always be a good guy for, in, in my book. But, uh, oh, and, and he liked my movie. But, but uh, when I think of Ebert... Really? Uh, Geely, that's right. He was a huge fan of Geely, and um, <laughs> everybody was. People loved that movie. Don't ever come. Don't ever come to the three two three, my friend. Because, but uh, uh, <laughs> he 
this script is so fucking good. It is so literate and so funny and so smart and so just in love with language, um, in love with movies, uh, in love with boobs. I mean, just everything. It's just, it's, it's everything. It's great. And I'm going to digress a moment. There's a book that Joan Didion wrote um, uh, with John Gregory Dunn called Monster which was about their experience writing. I can't remember the name of it. They wrote this shitty movie about uh, Jessica Savage, the newswoman. And it got, it got you know, destroyed and turned into a terrible film. And they wrote a book about their experience in Hollywood doing that. They'd written a ton of screenplays. And it's, it's a fine book. It's sort of a, it's a very anodyne kind of breakdown of how a movie goes wrong. Um, but there's a moment in the book where they're in Hollywood and they're going to an Oscar party at uh, Wolfgang Puck's, it's like Wolfgang Puck's private Oscar party. And they're very excited to be there. They look around everywhere they look. It's like A-list filmmakers and great writers and great directors. And, and then they see Ebert and they're both just outraged. Like, what's that guy doing here? And I remember, I, as I've literally only done this once in my life, I've actually thrown a book across the room. If Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn in one, like in their entire filmic career had written one scene as good as anything in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. But it's like, fuck them. He just, he's so far beyond them, so above them, so much better than them. And here are these fucking snobs whose entire filmography is all just kind of, it's fine. Like their best movie is fine. You know, they're not, just, oh, how dare they? But but Ebert, that one script, motherfucker, it's great. It's just great. And yeah, like you said about language, like just that sort of Green Acres esque montage of the the argument to and for 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 and against L.A. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, like the slam slam poetry, like set to kind of like a, a rock beat with like the quick cutting and the you know yeah and edited I, accordingly. Yeah, yeah, and I found myself looking for the landmarks like as it as it, as it went on. Yes. Um, and you know we have talked on the show about um, both. Ebert and his, uh, you know, longtime uh, TV partner and friend, Gene Siskel. Um, and, you know, they, these were not stupid guys, and they both had a, a really um, all-encompassing love of film that really shone through. But, you know, they had the occasional whack take. I mean, for example, like, neither one of them really understood the slasher movie when it was a thing. Yeah. Um, they didn't they just really didn't get like what that genre is about they kind of like took the like outraged moral stance about it um and while i've seen you know i've seen obviously like so much of ebert's criticism that i was like no yeah you know that's like a fair assessment like you know occasionally you'll read something from him where you go like come on but dude yeah your, your biggest film credit you open with a woman having a gun stuck in her mouth being forced to fillet it and getting shot as blood explodes out of her nose <laughs> there's certain things you don't get to complain about <laughs> just you just don't <laughs> that's a really good point it is um it is it is a an arresting way to to, to open one's yes. movie. Yes. Um and yeah, like I just I just can't get over like the the parallel to <laughs> to Phil Spector. I know that's I, I, I it's insane that I've never thought about that, but you're of course <clears throat> completely right. Um, but I think that um, you know, in spite of his occasional bad takes on movies, like I would say that this. This movie, like, really assures, like, Ebert's kind of reputation as, like, a really, a really clever 
yeah. writer because there's so much going on in this movie, which is like, and I, you know, I don't want to say like winking because that implies like a kind of ironic detachment, but um, you know, just kind of like the satirical elements are like what really distinguish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but how? Again, like we still haven't really explained like what this movie is or what it's about. Like, I don't know, Tim. Do you want to take a crack at it? Uh, the mamas and the papas come to L.A. No. And <laughs> no. All right. Uh, let's see. There's no man in the group, first of all. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, okay, and no, there's good. nobody in the movie as depraved as John Phillips, for one thing. Uh, good. good point. There, there's that. I mean, uh, say, is say it what Josie you want about Pussycats? Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> okay. It's it's a it's an X-rated uh, Josie and the Pussycats. <clears throat> ah, good. <clears throat> Magical fantasy land of Hollywood <clears throat> in 1970. There you go. And really, 1969, because yeah, it really is as much as it's 1970. It's a movie about the 60s. Yeah, and it really is kind of like that mythic. 60s that people like to talk about like the oh man if you if you remember it you weren't really there kind of thing um right i don't know LA if people, for people who aren't from la yeah i don't know if people still say that but um i don't well josh you've probably seen it the most time <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah um, i think <laughs> if you were to try to describe the well I don't want to say the plot. Let's call it the let's call it the log line. The the one. Yeah, it really is. It, it is it is an X-rated Josie and the Pussycats. It's about a a, a a girl group that comes to L.A. to make it big and then does and and sees the dark and seamy side of it all and uh, has to make a each, each one of them has to decide uh, each just like each of you will have to decide who you will be. They have to decide what they care about and where they stand in the world and who they love and what matters to them. And some live and some die and some find happiness and some get punished for, you know, being lesbians. Yeah, still some creepy stuff. <laughs> but God damn it. They're... But ultimately it's about friendship. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Even though I also, I, I feel like, you know, because it gets some heat. Uh, for people now, it certainly didn't then. Uh, for that aspect of it, because because the two lesbians in it do do die, um, you know, in nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy, you couldn't possibly make a film, especially for a studio in which they didn't, or in which they weren't punished for some way, in some way. And up up until that point, at least, uh, it's actually a pretty interesting, complicated adult relationship that those two women have. You know. Now the um. As a side note, yes. that's a very funny thing because if we're gonna take this um, kind of like celluloid closet like approach to looking at the movie and mm-hmm. you know its treatment of queerness, I saw <laughs> somebody tweeted the other day a screen cap of um, the TV tropes entry about the film uh, Milk, uh-huh. with Sean Penn, which as we all know is about uh, Harvey Milk, Milk, the mayor of San Francisco, um, and. On TV tropes, they were like, you know, this is a this is an example of the bury your gaze trope because Harvey Milk is murdered at the end of the movie, and I was just like, oh my god, this is a website for morons. Um, they changed the ending, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, that was my problem with the film. I got to be honest. Um, I don't know, if, you know, I've, I've been at this longer than you. I'm probably more enlightened. I was, I was, I thought the film was great, but I thought when they killed him, it was just like, come on, please, really? Can't, yeah, we have to punish him. <laughs> they could have. The, and no sequel either. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
Like yeah. they could, they're, 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 <laughs> really, really short sighted. Yeah, they're so afraid to make a sequel about a strong gay man that uh, or a series yep. that they killed him at the end of the first one. It's just it's bullshit. Yeah, what they come what on, they really Jan. Jan, you can when, do better. Shame on you. What they what what they really should have done was when uh, Dan White came into the office with a gun, like he and Harvey Milk should have realized that they were actually in love with each other. Sure. And Dan would have dropped the gun, and they would have run off together. That would that would have been and, that would have been much better. Got and got gay married. Well, then you, and that and would, you would have so just had American Beauty for for young queer people. I don't know why they didn't go that way, but um, yeah, like there is uh, obviously there's uh you know this movie has uh, lesbians in it. I mean, but like an actual like treatment of a lesbian relationship, um, mm-hmm. like it's got um. I mean, it's, it's, but that's the thing. There's a black love triangle. By the way, there's a, not just a black love triangle. There are uh, an African-American couple. My God, not just an African-American couple. The the woman gets to have sex several times with different guys. Black sexuality in movies, especially in studio films, just non-existent. I mean, the fact that they get to have sex and they actually get to make it all the way through the film without being punished is fucking amazing. It was like a black Bechdel test almost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah because um the um like one of the girls uh pet uh she has a relationship with uh you know a handsome young law student mm-hmm. and you know ends up with a in a triangle with uh a dangerous Ali. young fighter Muhammad yeah, Ali. yeah basically so it's one of my favorite lines hey my man last it's what is it since i since the last time i saw you you became heavyweight champion of the world <laughs> <laughs> and everywhere he goes, he wears no shirt and has a towel over his shoulders. Oh yeah, that's true, huh? Because he's a champ. Yeah, and he's a champ. Like the, the way he's presented, yeah. Because it's like, how is she gonna say no to him? Yeah, come on. Does anyone come yeah, to? I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. And she's I, and I love that. And and by the way, that's Meyer. You know, that is Meyer. Like he's like, yeah, good for her. You know. Yeah, we have. Um... I mean, we, you know, beyond, like, uh, lesbian sexuality and, like, you know, kind of, like, fully realized, like, black characters, like, in the, throughout the movie, like, we have women, like, openly showing, like, sexual desire and having sex. And, like, not all of them get killed for... Well, no, and look at look at all the women get to fuck whoever they want to fuck in a sort of in the yeah. best way possible. And the few men who actually engage in, in sexual congress with more than one woman are are they're all fucked up you know it's like her boyfriend's off doing it with Edie adams but he's just like off in this drunken drug addicted haze of self-loathing and hatred and and you know it's it's uh then what's her name the other guy who's the gigolo is just an absolute pig but the women are like they're free they get to do this stuff and they don't get punished again except for the lesbian and it's the era and i understand that but come on yeah, and, and all the the people like that seem like in high status that you mean in the beginning are just shown to be like these just really like desperate broken people by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Which you know it's it's something it's a cautionary tale. I don't know I don't know if they lay it on thick at the very end, but it came across that way to me. <laughs> well, except for her yeah, aunt, who does get to marry the love of her life, Charles Napier. Right. Yeah, that's true, and it's great seeing him. In, yeah, in this. is yes, young this Charles her, Napier. Yeah, <laughs> In in so many Meyer Meyer loved him. They were just yeah. He's great in Super Vixens too. So. Yeah, just like the opening scene of that. It's like him like like beating like a woman and then electrocuting her in a bathtub. Right. It's like 
Yeah, this is how you start your movie. Sure. Yeah, because because <laughs> because he's in bed with a huge-breasted, stunning twenty-four-year-old nymphette who wants to perform fellatio on him, and uh, 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 he, he he doesn't go for that because it's uh, it's uh, it's queer stuff, as he says. And, and, yeah, yeah, and... that that character just like, oh, you got problems, man. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a very troubled yeah, individual. Um, <laughs> speaking of queer themes, there's also a, um, and you know, this is something that uh, was also in um, the movie Valley of the Dolls. I can't speak for the book because why would I read it? Um, but um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls does have a scene with. Um, uh, someone's manhood being questioned um and it was really funny like because i i texted tim like before we were recording because i was you know like i said i was just kind of scrubbing through um the original valley of the dolls and as i scrubbed i stopped and i and i landed right on a part where patty duke was calling a guy a fag oh wow (laughs) and i was like whoa 1967 i'll be i'll be damned um Madam, yeah, you've like, cut me to the quick. Yeah, <laughs> with your rapier wits. But yeah. yeah, there's like a similar scene in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls where uh, Edie Williams. Has, uh, what you uh, need yes. is a nice young boy. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's a pistol, isn't she? Yes, um, she was Meyer's wife too. Yes. Um, and uh, they, smiles with all of her teeth. Yes. Every yeah. last one of them. Yeah. She's a. Uh, uh, she's really something, and this this is something I didn't realize about Edie Williams is that, um, you know, like she was married to Myers, uh, Russ Meyer for a while, and um, like I don't know how her career went after that. I just know that she, for years after that, like up until like, oh my God, like I just realized until like at least 1999, she had a penchant for showing up to the Academy Awards very wearing very little. Uh, and, oh right, um, yeah, and can too, right? Wasn't she at the yeah, and, all the time? Yeah, and yeah. I sent I sent a link to Tim where it was just like various like um, you know news agency photos of her just with one titty out. Like <laughs> this this is a this is not a woman yep. who's good at wearing clothes. Show your best side, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, like she's uh, but. You know, her role basically in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is to be, you know, she's like an adult film star. Uh, she immediately latches on to um, uh, Harris, um, the, the young guy who's having a relationship with, uh, what's her name? Is kind of his band. It was kind of supplanted immediately by Z-Man. Yeah, he, yeah he's like, such a was. But I also want to say that, that, that Edie Williams also shows up as uh, uh, one of... God, what's the character? One of the few characters they made up for the show, but on the old Batman '66, Liberace played a villain, and uh, Eve Williams played his his mall essentially. Um, but yeah, Harris is that poor guy. Uh, he's he's such a drip, and he's also you know it's like you really do need to be symmetrical to be in movies. This is these these are the things you notice like the forty third time. There's there's scenes when they're playing a song. <laughs> And there's this rivalry going on between Z-Man and Harris, who is dating the, the, the lead singer in the band. And she started to drift oh, yeah, towards Dr. Great. Z. And they're playing, and their faces, Z-Man is superimposed on one side, and Harris is on the other. And then they flop them. And it's obviously the same shot, but they have flopped Harris. And you realize he's very asymmetrical, because he looks just, when they reverse the way his face looks, he looks just 
He's just the dumbest looking guy you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he is playing like kind of like the, you know, the gormless yeah. young guy. Bit of a he's, he's the ingenue. Yeah. He is the only ingenue yeah. in the thing. Everybody else knows what they're doing. Poor Harris is just a... Yeah, because, um, you know, his girlfriend who, like, I just refreshed my memory, Kelly McNamara, played yes. by the very cute uh, Dolly Reed. Um, very British. She, yeah, and, like, she really knows, like, you know, what's what. Like, she just dives into this Hollywood scene, like, full tilt. Um, you know, gets, like, a new guy. Like, her career takes off. And, you know, Harris is really floundering. Like, and to the point where, like, you know, Edie Williams is coming on to him. And, you know, like, I mean, like, the only way... Said the spider to the fly. Yeah, like, the only way she'd be more obvious would be if she just said to him, like, I want to fuck you. She does. She goes, you're you're an interesting boy. I'd love to strap you on. I don't know if you can get much more explicit than that. That's the first time they meet, so... And that would go over my head. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, have you ever had that experience? Yes. (laughs) Incredibly sexy women have said, "I'd like to strap you on." Those words, more or less. Okay. Yeah, not, not not those words exactly, but yes, I yeah, it's got to be those words. Really. It doesn't count if it's not those words. Oh, okay, never mind. I guess it's way more. Fun than that. <laughs> but I know, like, uh, like very attractive women have like bore, like just like laid their tits upon you and been like, "Hey, how about it?" And you're like, eh. "Yeah." <laughs> Just like, well, Leah, let me finish what I'm Meanwhile, doing. Yeah, A, A, that's A. B, you're like 24. C, your girlfriend, who's a rock singer, is off in the bedroom with Phil Spector. I think it's okay. I think it's all right. Be allowed. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, poor Harris really, really suffers while the uh, the uh, Carrie Nation's career takes off. Yes. Um. Yeah, and, so much of it is just like, you know, get in while the getting's good or, or you know, just like kind of decline into obscurity. And that's what Harris is yeah. set up for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, he just isn't like, you know, he just doesn't vibe with it, man. He's just not. And he's such life. a selfish asshole, finally, in the end, because he, he you know, they're, they're, they're doing a TV show. Right. They're they're having they're having their mm-hmm. hits. They go on a TV show and they decide to like, you know, they're they're like, hey, let's not. Let's not do a song off the album. Let's do one of our old classics for for Harris, who we all miss, you know? What they don't realize is that Harris is up in the rafters. And while they're performing on fucking TV, on basically the Carson show, what does he do? He jumps off the rafters and tries to kill himself. Like, what a fucking dick. I'm sorry. Although I love, did you catch, and if you didn't go back and watch it again, the sound effect when he drops? It's the sound of an... I caught that, yeah. It's the sound of an airplane... crashing it's amazing yeah and you get the snap at the end too yeah. and it's great the host is just like keep those cameras rolling yeah, yeah. keep rolling. the cameras rolling yes <laughs> yes yeah like um can you imagine if that guy had been at our bud dwyer's press conference <laughs> <laughs> keep rolling yeah but i'm just yeah. every time yeah. i see it i'm just like harris, harris is a dick it's like the biggest mistake kelly made is to get involved with that dipshit well yeah because um the uh lance rock um kind of yes. like the the gigolo type like good looking yes. blonde guy, but he's transparently after her money because she's about to come into an inheritance from her from her aunt. Or her aunt yeah. wants to get her like her yeah. mother like a share of her mother's inheritance or something like that. But it, you know, it almost doesn't matter. Um the movie's so crazy. By the way, played by like Michael this... Blodgett, who who went on to be a screenwriter and uh wrote Turner and Hooch. 
you know so Jen you would be a fan I saw that I'm, I'm not joking when um because I was probably about 10 when that movie came out I saw it at least four times in the theater That's... as well as canine starring uh James Belushi so, yeah, sort of the also the ran. Knockoff. Yeah, well, that's Lance Rock sitting behind a keyboard knocking that out. So, honestly, good for him. Um, yep. yep. I don't remember anything about Turner and Hooch. It's just that there's a big slobbery dog in it and Tom Hanks. But um, you know, I hope he got his bag off that. Um, he's uh, he's very good in this. Is kind of the uh... he's so vile, isn't he? He's so like everything about him. He's got those. He's got unctuous eyelids. It's just he's incredible. He's incredible. Yeah, he's like, he's, you know, good looking, but, you know, everything about him just screams fuck boy. I yeah. mean, they didn't have yeah. the expression back then, but yeah, he's, he's, he's a fuck boy. Well, he's and literally. You know, so which, which we, yeah. yeah, we get a glimpse of that later. Like, it's him with, like, some old maid. Not again, lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's fucking some old bitch, because, you know, probably because she has money. Um, uh, right, yeah, uh, probably you need to watch the film again. I think you may have missed it, the essential truth of the character. <laughs> It's only because uh, only she's got money. No, and no, no. I think he's. I I think he likes mature women. Some guys who are like that. I mean, we shouldn't judge. But yeah, that gets back to like all these you know successful, albeit broken characters, where it's like there's this desperate drive to remain relevant. Yeah. And like you know, everyone's like stepping on everyone else just to like stay ahead. And so that's why he's compromised in that he's like you know sleeping with you know rich women for their money or whatever just to like stay in the limelight yeah. it, it's sort of this tragic character that it's you know isn't successful in their own regard but only by what they're grasping for they only get that because they're so grasping yeah and there are so many <clears throat> kind of funny wild characters in this movie who are you know as venal um we haven't talked about venal, thank um, you we haven't talked about porter hall oh porter hall <clears throat> um, who is immediately like very jealous of Kelly because he sees her as you know essentially someone who is just out to you know enrich herself. Um, but you know he probably wants he wants to keep that gravy train for himself. So to that end, uh, he kind of goes toe to toe with Kelly, who bests him pretty easily. I yeah. Would say. yeah. He's really not equipped to, to deal with Kelly. Yeah. No, she demolishes him how... with her marijuana and her sexuality. Yeah, they're like tete a tete is kind of takes place in their respective domains, you know. He like tries to get her drunk. You know, in, in like his domain. Yeah. But then it's like, why don't we go back to my place and I'll get you high? Yeah. And it's like, well now you're on my turf. Yeah. And he just oh man, he he just cannot cope with this little spitfire. <laughs> <laughs> she's um she's she's very attractive <laughs> also you seen them titties oh my god honestly like literally like all the women in this movie are absolute dimes oh my god like there's almost like i was almost overwhelmed because like they're all just so they're all so gorgeous <laughs> like every every last one of them except maybe like the old bitch that Lance Rock is fucking, but, you know, I'm sure she has a good personality. Um, yeah, yeah, Cynthia Myers was, I think, just honkers. my dream girl when I was about 13. So, uh, she, Casey. Casey, the, the drummer. Uh, yeah, she comes to a sad, she tragic is, end because she never met a man like me, so she goes to women. She is so rough, yeah. hot. She like, just my God. Those eyes, oh, my God. And then, like, you know, before her tragic ending, she spends... <clears throat> She spends the bookends of the movie just running around in like a lace like 
get up that yes Ooh. man and you know and getting an abortion I... getting an abortion don't forget yeah um <laughs> i love that i love that scream and cut that yeah they have to the eggs being fried yeah she just flips out in the in the abortionist office but yeah like my man like Russ Meyer knew how to photograph the female form. Oh, God, did he? <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. Tim, did you? What did you think of the the dames in this movie? Uh, like you say, straight dimes. Uh, you know, uh, Russ has a type. <laughs> yeah, he he does it that. Um, what did you think of uh, Dolly Reed, uh, Kelly? Uh, that's cute. Wow. She's great. My, my, it drives me crazy that, that especially Meyer, who was so great at finding these people, um, her her inability to do an American accent just makes me crazy. She's always like, you know, I want one million dollars, man. You're not from the Midwest. Because, yeah, I noticed that. And I was like, huh. Like, is it, I assume this actress is British because, like, the, the Britishness is, is coming out. It's like the... Um, the famous like Christian Bale freak out on the set of Terminator Salvation. And if you listen to it, you hear him like go in and out of like John Connor's American accent to his own. Like there are flashes yeah. of, of the British, but then he goes back to like American. Right. It's it's very weird. Well that's like, a performance. I mean I I should oh, yeah. I should as somebody is He's a hard man, eh? No, I, I, I <laughs> look, I mean it's every everywhere gave him shit for that and there's a million reasons to give actors shit. But an an AD who keeps interfering with your shot—it's like that shouldn't happen once. It's it's completely fucking insane because it's 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 bad for other performers. This guy kept doing it, and and I don't get killed for this. But at a certain point, you're like, this 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 can't happen. This is this extreme level of unprofessionalism, and my my under my sense of that is that that was a performance. That he was like, all right, I'm just gonna go full on mental on this guy, and if that doesn't fucking do it. I don't know what will. You and me, we're done professionally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a great performance. You know it's, it's a way to get your point across. Yeah. yeah. And he he just wanted to be able to make eye contact with Bryce Dallas Howard without interference. That's, I could that's see a big deal. That. That's a big deal. Look, I'm, I'm happy to bag on these guys. I had somebody, to, you know, it's like Tom Cruise won't make eye contact with the, with the crew before he goes on set. You're like, yeah, he's got to get into a place to do his thing. I'm not a Tom Cruise fan, but well, that's that's just that's part of the job. It's a weird fucking job, man. No, no, yeah, that's something that we talked about before. Yeah, it is a, a, a strange job. It's a strange job, yeah. I mean, not to look it at is, it. It is a very strange job. I'm fairly sympathetic. Um, but uh, getting back to the uh, the topic at hand, Josh, like what um, I've kind of alluded to it in my, you know, kind of the way I've talked around it on the show so far. But there really is something about this movie that sets it apart from other kind of like psychedelic cash grabs at the time. So maybe you can tell our audience like what the real appeal of this movie is because oh, it God. definitely has something more going on under the surface than just like hey it's like tits and drugs and sex and yeah. you know crazy shit and then there's a murder at the end you know wait that's not a feeling like what more do you yeah. want <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you because most of the movies that we're trying to do with this film did are, are doing it from the outside in and by people who are trying very hard to pass off as coming from the inside out if that makes sense 
And Meyer and Ebert don't give a fuck. They are having a blast. They know enough about this culture that they can do this kind of insane cartoon version of it. But they know they're not part of it, but they enjoy the fuck out of it. They enjoy kids. They enjoy the youth culture. They enjoy the energy of it. Um, and they have nothing but love for it. And they are making the movie they want to make. There's nothing in this that is like, okay, how do we, how do we pander to this audience? Because they're not doing that. And I think that that's the film's fundamental appeal is that this is not an attempt to talk down to you, to lure you into something. This is like, motherfucker, this is our vision. And you're either with us, you know, you're on the bus or you're off the bus. And that alone, you know, is, is, is a huge appeal, especially at a time when that was actually a mantra. It was like, you're on the bus or you're off the bus. And, and I think people can recognize that um, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to say about this movie. It's sincere. Yeah, it, it's, you know, presenting a, a certain strength of convictions. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, it, you know, we're making the movie that we want to make, and it's great that it resonates with people, but if it doesn't, fuck them. Fuck them, which, the which is why, you know about the Sex you know about the sex Pistols connection? I mean, do you have you guys, because uh, the Sex Pistols... I do not. Sex Pistols love this movie. Um, one of the things, I only found this out a couple of years ago. I mean, I knew the story. I didn't know about this one line. Uh, the Sex Pistols, um, when uh, at, at their peak, uh, there was going to be a movie, and there is there is finally a, a movie, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which is a mm-hmm. collage of some of the various and sundry failed attempts to make a Sex Pistols movie. And there's even some footage from the Meyer version. But they got Russ Meyer and Roger Ebert on board to write it, and Roger Ebert wrote a script for the Sex Pistols movie that you know some of it got made. And I know there, there were issues, because I think it's one thing for Johnny Rotten to be watching this movie and loving its anarchic spirit. And then all of a sudden he's sitting in a room with this World War II vet who's into bourbon and broads and, and just, they just did not get along. But the, the famous line from the Sex Pistols from their last concert at Winterland, when they broke up, they came out, they played a shitty 20 minute set. And then you've seen the footage, you know, Johnny Rotten squats down and says, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Tosses his mic, walks off stage. The Sex Pistols were no more. That is a line from Roger Ebert's script for the Sex Pistols movie. Huh. It was one of the most famous lines in fucking rock and roll, and Roger Ebert wrote it, and he never made a big deal out of it. It's just... <laughs> I did not know that. I, of course I know about, you know, I've, like... I've... You heard it here, her, here first, or I hear, heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated. Yeah, that's Ebert wrote <laughs> that. I don't know if it was a line for Rodden or somebody else, but... Um, but it, you know, and that never mystified me. It never, I was never surprised to find out that the Sex Pistols love Beyond the Valley of Dolls because it's the exact same aesthetic. This is us. Come with us or don't. Fuck you. We don't care. End of story. And because there's nothing in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls that is trying to lure someone in who against their will, you know? <laughs> it's just, you're, you're in or you're out. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think Julian Temple was the one who ended up being uh, yeah he lashed having it all to take together. on that burden of yep. trying to make something useful, um, and that became the the great rock and roll swindle. And of course, like um, you know, like a couple decades later, he made the very great documentary on the Sex Pistols, The Filth and the Go Fury. Sure, yeah. Um, but God, yeah, like Russ Meyer and Ebert, like trying to get along with the Sex Pistols, must have been like something to see because you know those are like reasonably i mean my impression and i i could be wrong is that those are like you know reasonably 
straight shooting guys for like guys in the industry but then you got like the you know the sex pistols and you know they're like malcolm mclaren and that whole yeah i can't yeah. i can't see any of that i know like, a... you know it's like being in on the joke versus being the joke right? <laughs> um but yeah Step like further. uh i guess you know there is like a kind of you know just like a gonzo sincerity to the movie but what do we make of the ending? And I don't, I don't mean like, um, you know, of course we can talk about like, you know, the murder spree, which closes it out and then Harris magically regaining his ability to walk, yes. which is <laughs> so hilarious. But, um, you know, the it's like cartoon logic, you know, it's, it's amnesia, but you get bonked on the head and then you get your memories back. <laughs> he falls out of the car and he can walk again. Yeah, it, I, I love stuff. It's why I love body double. It's got it's got the same sort of ending where it's just like you know we've triumphed over evil now everything's gonna be okay personally. Uh, yes, yeah, so like spiritually, like they needed a reason for it to happen. Yeah, like well, that's why it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's true. And then you know, but um, I mean, can we can ends... we? But you're perfect example. Of, I'm sorry, I mean, but but the no no no, please. Is there anything? And again, even in the time, this was wildly inappropriate, and you couldn't believe what you were seeing when they're all scrambling to get to Z-Man's house to save their friends, <laughs> and they're trying to get Harris into the car in his wheelchair, and he falls over. I mean, they're just making slapstick comedy out of a guy in a wheelchair falling over and crawling on the ground, and it's so awful and it's so wrong, but it's so fucking funny. <laughs> No, it is very funny because, like, when, um, you know, Casey makes her desperate call to Kelly saying, like, oh, my God. He's killing he's everybody. He's killing everyone. And then it has the, and then um, Harris is like, let's go. And it has this whole, like, let's go, team gang yeah. kind of, like, Scooby-Doo feel action. to yeah. it. Into the van. And yeah. Into the van, no yeah. less. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's like seeing, like, the, the Scooby-Doo gang, yeah. like, you know, scrambling to get on the road, and it's like, it's like, oh my god, like, what what are you people going to do in this situation? There's, like, a lunatic who's just beheaded someone, like, you know, on the loose. But, you know, this is a Hollywood movie, and so, like, everything's going to work out at the end, on the end, right? And yes, it does work out with, like, a big triple wedding, and then, um, and what the I killing, really want to talk about... And the killing of Martin Borman, too. Martin Borman finally pays for his terrible crime. Oh yeah, like God, we haven't even talked about. Oh my God, but, yeah. So it it ends with this big triple wedding, and then also this like um, kind, like this stentorian homily from like a you know an omniscient narrator. And I remember like I hadn't seen this entire movie before. I had caught the last third of it, I think, on TCM like many, many, many years ago. I didn't know anything about it, and you know I remember watching it unspool and like the the narration you know with the the narrator like talking about like uh you know the journey these characters have been through and like their moral choice and stuff like that and i was like oh i was like this movie's a satire or something isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and you know i wasn't able to put the pieces together like until i guess like last night when you know i finally watched the entire thing like all the way through but it's really like a poke in the eye to like that just like that tired Hollywood morality that you got that that would soon be pretty much swept away by the new Hollywood in the 70s, you know, where you had you were able to have stories about moral ambiguity and, you know, characters that were, were not quite good and not quite bad. You know, these very complex stories. Um, and there was, an easy writer. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Like, there's no way. 
yeah, studio people would not, they'd be like, what the fuck is this? Like, you can't, you can't end your fucking movie this way. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it's like, hey, like, we're really just going to cram it down your throat. Like, we're just going to make it, like, as ridiculous as possible because there is, you know, and Josh, you can back me up on this, like, the situation hasn't changed, like, you know, 40 and 50 years later. Like, there's still a feeling in mainstream filmmaking that it's like, well, you know, we don't know if the audience is going to get it. Like, we really have to, like, make it clear to them. Like, there's no room for any kind of, like, nuance or kind of giving the audience clues and letting them put to, put it together themselves. It's like, no, like, you really have to spell it out for these dumb fucks. Yeah, but I mean, and, <clears throat> and yet they're just having so much fun with that, you know? that's the... Right, that's, and that's exactly the point. It's yeah. like, it's like, hey, you want, you you know, you want to shovel shit? Like, we'll shovel twice as much as you wanted us to shovel. Yeah, I mean, you, you if you ever see that in a movie theater, it's like the one thing you know for sure is the last three minutes of that film, people are howling with laughter. And yeah. deservedly so, and rightfully so, and intentionally so. Yeah, but um, let's. Well, can we talk about the ending in a way that um? Nah, well, we're giving it away. We'll give it away. That's fine. <laughs> you know, while this this movie just kind of, uh, gosh, like it's such a phantasmagoric like merry-go-round of like crazy happenings. You know, we alluded to the way that the the editing like doesn't let you like take a breath, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, let let's lose your attention for a half a second. Yeah, yeah, to the point where um, yeah, the editing is really something in this. Like, it's really like, and that's another way in which it like diverges from like studio product is that, I mean, you just know that they were pissed about the way this was cut. Yeah, you're showing scenes of things that haven't happened yet. What's, what's oh no, you mean at the end? No, that that's actually an old um. That, that's I, I guarantee you that was not in the original script. That's that's an old screenwriter's trick uh, for when you know you're concerned that the audience is going to get bored because they don't realize that the good shit's coming. So, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's, know, it's like we we'll show you some uh, uh, Nazi and some gunplay at the start. Just be like, don't worry, folks. It'll get in. It really because it's like it, the first saying, the first yeah. you know, and especially if you're there, you know, it's also Meyer going like, hey, hey, to my troops. You know, don't worry. It's going to get, we're going to go full Meyer eventually. Just here, I'll give you a preview. Now watch these, these, you know, Josie and the Pussycats move to LA and get corrupted for a while. That's a really good point. Like what you say, uh, how you described it as like a screenwriter's trick. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, with all the, like, Tim and I watch a lot of trash. And I often wonder why more like B filmmakers don't use that trick because so many, um, so many trash movies just start in like a really boring way. Like they don't even know to like put like a really good kill up front or like, you know, put some people fucking or something, you know, it's like you get, get the blood moving like early on. Right. Um, and yeah, like it is, um, it, it, it certainly is like a, a, de a device that's deployed here, but you know, throughout, like you just have this like crazy, like avant-garde, cutting that's going on and to the point where you almost feel like a little bit like um i can't even describe how i felt watching it just like breathless because like there's there's these rapid cuts on the dialogue and everything is like moving so fast and you just get flashes yeah you know, i mean it's like a very it's very 1960s like you got that um and I, you know it goes all the way back to 
Eisenstein and all that stuff. But, you know, it is this very 60s thing of, like, you know, very rapid cuts, which kind of, like, prefigures, well, like, MTV and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but... it, it, it cuts to things that you don't know what they are. It's like, you know, patient's general viewer, it'll all be made clear. Yeah. And, and Meyer was, I mean, my, my sense is, um, you know, because he was definitely on the cutting edge of that. Uh, he was always, always making movies for himself. And he was bored. You know, he's mm-hmm. easily bored. Oh, my God. All the things around talking, how do I get to the tits? You know, it's like, I know. I'll make this scene go, you know, this five, I'll make this five-minute scene go by in 43 seconds. How can I do that? Chop, 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 chop. You know, and it's like, it's all there. But at the same time, he never lost his uh, capacity for, you know, showmanship, for entertainment. It's like he knew that it had to, it has to translate to an audience. What's the quickest way I can do that? Cut all the bullshit out. And, and he was a fucking master of it. He really is. It's like, and, and there are there are people who study his editing. Yes, there should be, but he was an incredible, incredible editor. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you wanted to say, you know, rule one is just don't waste our time. Yeah, don't waste the audience's time. Yeah, Get yeah to the and tits. then you couple that with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, there's a bunch of people talking with... here, but can we flash forward to a couple making out in a bathtub? Yeah, yeah. And you couple that with Ebert's dialogue, which is like. Um, it's it's like groovy slam poetry, but it's it's this mishmash of so many things. You know, it's that that Shakespearean stuff and that hippie talk and, and that amazing speech that the abortion or not the abortionist the doctor gives about how Harris is going to be able to you know maybe be able to live yes a fulfilling life as a paraplegic while the music swells which is which is so straight funny. out of some kind of fifties you know yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's he's like, just throwing everything. There's some kind of Ed Wood cautionary yeah. tale. He's just throwing everything it's into the, the. It's it's like the stuff that Douglas Sirk was kind of like poking yeah. fun at, like the Doctor sequence. Yeah, oh no, they're very Netflix. similar. There's a reason. There's a reason John Waters loved Douglas Sirk and Russ Meyer with the same intensity and passion because they are yeah, they are definitely exactly. trading in the same. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I think can trip up screenwriters um you know especially like less experienced ones is being so in love with the written word that um it makes particularly like the dialogue like very samey where it's like i i just love creating dialogue but you're like well all these characters talk in the exact same very clever way yeah yeah you're talking about joss whedon yeah, we're, we're getting into, like, I don't want to be too on brand here. And let me plug, you know, I, I do a podcast called The West Wing Thing where we dissect every single episode of The West Wing for its terrible fucking politics. One of one of the things that we learned as we went, Dave and I started the show, like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll chop up the politics. But, I mean, you know, Sorkin's a great writer. And the more we got into it, it's like, oh, my God, he's not a great fucking writer. And, and, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, and people are always like, well, Shakespeare's characters always talk the same. We're like, no, they always talk an iambic no. pentameter, but they have different voices. Sorkin's all right. just talk smug. And fucking yes. Ebert, yeah, think about, like, the different... Imagine, like, you know, Z-Man having a conversation with Randy, the fucking Muhammad Ali character. Those are two incredibly distinct characters. Yes. You know, with their own voices. I mean, hilariously so. Z-Man does Shakespeare. As someone says, Ed Z-Man shit sounds like Shakespeare. And and Randy, like, everything is in boxing metaphors. You know, everybody has their... Everything Harris says is just sort of downtrodden and pathetic. You know, everybody mm-hmm. has their own voice in this thing. Yes. That's amazing writing. It's... it's Yeah. Yeah, their own point of view, which informs their... The 
way they speak. Yeah. That is exactly right. And that is, I think that that's really rare and like really the sign of a great writer where the characters have legitimately distinct voices. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of writers who get lauded as being very clever, um, you know, they all their characters kind of speak as like extensions of the writer. Yeah, as you say, um, Joss Whedon and, and uh, Aaron right. Sorkin being the top of that list. I, I will always defend Mammoth because even though everybody, you can always tell a Mammoth character within, mm-hmm. you know, a line or two, they still within that have their own distinct perspective and voice. Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah, it's true. Kind of the, but, it's uh, the difference of being like a great actor versus being like a movie star. It's like, you know, you go for this certain style yeah. versus going for people who sort of disappear into their characters, yeah. whether it's a writer or an actor. Yeah, yeah. yeah and the, th- the thing with Mammoth is even, like, with minor Mammoth, like, for example, like, I recent speaking of Phil Spector, I recently revisited mm. the movie that Mammoth made about Phil Spector, which, you Never know, it's it. no... It's a... Uh, you know, it's not... Watch a Spanish prisoner instead. I was going to say, it's Watch not Spartan, goddammit. I will go to my grave defending that fucking movie. Ooh, that might be <laughs> one I don't think I've I seen that one. Yeah. What? I'd have to visit. But the thing about, um, you know, the, the, the Phil Spector movie is that even though it's like not like, you know, it's not an immortal <laughs> movie like, uh, you know, or uh, it's not like Glengarry Glen Ross, but it still has that like snappy crackling dialogue that you get with Mammoth. So right. it's like, you know, you still see glimpses of it. But yeah. Um, yeah, but, you know, going back to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, like, I'm really hard-pressed to think of many movies that that effectively give you different character voices. Yep. Like, I mean, you really, and Josh, you really pinpointed it where it's like, you know, Z-Man, like, speaks completely differently from, you know, Randy or Lance or, you know, any, or any normal person. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the... I don't know. Do we want to talk about uh? Do we want to talk about Martin Borman <laughs> or the ending? Yeah, actually, somebody, somebody. So, so, I mean, yeah. If you've gotten this far and you haven't seen the film, fuck you. You're, 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 you deserve what you get. But the revelation at the end, I heard someone recently uh, describe the film as transphobic and drove me crazy because Z-Man. <clears> I, I, I will go to my ground. I'll fight for this one. Z-Man is not a trans character. Z-Man is a woman. There were, um, I don't and know. It, and that's fine to have a problem with women. I mean, <laughs> and let's be clear, he's a flat chested woman. So come on, fuck that bitch. I mean, yeah. it's in a Russ oh, Meyer movie. Of course, she's woman. a bad girl, <laughs> bad guy. Yeah. Oh my God, it all makes sense now. Yeah, the smallest boobs in the film belong to Z Man. No wow. wonder she was so angry. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? I feel like, yeah. Like in, yeah, in the yeah. Russ Wire universe, your only option surrounded by all that, you know, prompting nastiness, is that a word? <laughs> is is to pass yourself off as Phil Spector. And um, I'll say this, and you know. Uh, Nobody I'm, listens to this, right? I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> well, I was going to say, like, um, and we, like, maybe perhaps some of our trans listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but. There are movies which get labeled as queerphobic or transphobic, but they're so far removed from the actual experience of of trans or queer people that they 
they almost get a pass from <laughs> from me. And I, you know, maybe I'm full of shit and I'm not going to say that it isn't like that it isn't like problematic to have like a you know, some kind of, like, insane trans villain, like, murder everybody at the end of your movie. Like, yeah, it's not progressive, but um, Z-Man might as well be from another planet. Like, <laughs> Yeah, like, you think that the trans thing is Z-Man's problem? <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, you want, to, you want to put it in that perspective? Yeah, it's 1969. Imagine how fucking difficult it would be having to live in that world. As a, you know, it's like the world makes you crazy. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I can, I can defend Z-Man on every level if you want. I, I'm... Well, and the other thing too, is that, um, and you know, this was, uh, not to go back to celluloid closet, but, um, maybe a better parallel would be, uh, something which Tim and I have talked about on the show before. Or I'm pretty sure we talked about like, um, one thing that we always laughed about was, uh, you know, being nerds ourselves um, and interested in oh, yeah. in genre stuff, you know, like science fiction or whatever. Um, the real generational divide between science fiction fans is, you know, with older sci-fi fans, it's like you talk to them and they'll be like, you know, it was a really great show, Space 1999 or something like that. And you're like, no, that show wasn't good. It was just practically the only science fiction that was on TV. You had to like it. Yeah. You know, now we have choices. We don't just have to take whatever shit is shoveled down our throats. And it's kind of the same thing with queer representation in movies where um, opinions are much divided on this. And, you know, that's totally fair. But it's like, you know, some people are like, hey, you know, Buffalo Bill from Sounds of the Lambs is, queer rep- is trans representation. And I love Buffalo Bill. And then other trans people are like, you know, I... Like, I was physically sick when I saw Silence of the Lambs because, you know, it was just such an ugly representation of something that, you know, I am. Um, And, you know, years hence, it's like we don't have to settle for, like, that, you know, just representation in movies because it's like, you know, there are actual, like, you know, queer characters that are, you know, fully realized and not just like, oh, well, you know, like, the, the villain in this is nominally trans so you know we're gonna latch onto that as representation but i don't know if like again like z-man to me might as well be an extraterrestrial yeah and i'm, I'm a big fan <laughs> of look I, I get it i'm an old white guy and you know what the fuck do i know and and, and and everything about the culture i grew up in deserves to be burned to the ground i'm not being funny but um uh context really is everything i mean i'm i'm i'm, I'm you know that's going to be inscribed on my gravestone and you have to look at it in terms of the context of the time, because every great radical progressive message of its day looks fucking dated and stained and mm-hmm. noxious today. You know what I mean? And, you know, I've had these conversations mm-hmm. with people and, you know, one, one of the because there's not a lot of trans representation in films at all up till, you know, a decade or two ago, uh, beyond one or two unfortunate uh, examples. But. You know the one. The one I always go to is like you know the black best friend, uh, who who always had to die in a certain kind of film mm-hmm. for a long time, and for me, I don't know where the line is. I don't know where the, the cutoff is, but for the first few years of that, that was actually a way of like actually getting black characters into films and portraying them as something other than just sort of the help. And it was like, okay, mm-hmm. the price you pay is you got to kill him. Jim Brown's going to have to die saving you know Rod Taylor's life. Uh, in Dark of the Sun, but that's, you know, 1967 or something. By 1985, it's really fucking noxious. But there is a period of time there 
where it's people in Hollywood trying to do everything they can to get that into a film, you know, to get something vaguely progressive and challenging into a movie, and that's the price you've got to pay. Um, it's incremental. Yeah, it is incremental. The, the one that always gets me is, is what uh, Kimberly Pierce, the one who directed um, Boys Don't Cry. Boys Don't Cry. Did you hear it like a year or two ago? Well, no, it has to be more than a year because we've been quarantined. Was at a screening of the film, and she got booed by a bunch of trans students because she had cast a mm-hmm. cisgender actress as Brandon Tina. You know, like, yeah, if she did that today, that movie actually opened the door for movies dealing with these issues so that we're actually able to have these conversations today. You know, and it's like judging it, judging a movie from the early 90s by the standards of 2020. It's, it's just, you'll go insane doing that. I'll say this, like, um, because there is... Uh, you you'll know, start booing your allies in theaters. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh like that's really tough and like I don't know if it's quite fair. And the other thing is that um you know rightly so I think that um <clears throat> you know people are saying like you know why aren't we casting trans actors and trans parts? But you know this is something I said to Tim like the other week I was like wait a minute like wh- why aren't we casting trans actors in cis roles? Like the only one I can think of off the top of my head is uh, there's a trans actress playing a cis woman in Gaspar Noe's Climax. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, she probably struck me as someone who was part of that scene. So mm-hmm. in that way, it kind of fits. And that's more of a more question of why aren't you just casting a person who's appropriate for the role that they represent? It, it, is it something? It was done similarly about um, action movies a while ago, where it's like, why are we casting all these like? charmless meatheads in action movie leads and it's like oh because they got the look for it. it's like you don't trust that an actor can maybe like hit the gym for a couple of weeks and then look the part like yeah trust trust in someone's ability to present themselves you know as a different sort of character rather than just being you know reductive about their you know demographic especially like, when we need a trans person to play a trans person especially in these days of human growth hormone but um one thing that I will yeah. say, like, um, I, going I back to, to Josh's oh, point. Oh, no, um, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, going back to your point about um, kind of the people who are trying to just crack the door. Obviously, like, it's these things were unfortunate. But, like, the thing is, is that there were these radical viewpoints, like, at the time. It's just that it was so, so difficult to get mainstream places like you know the hollywood studio system to even indulge it so and i have i can't speak to kimberly pierce's politics and you know i don't know if she would have been amenable to it or not but like i have to imagine that if she was like oh let's you know can we cast like a trans man in this role like they would have laughed her out of the conference room she would never have gotten that film made at that time. Yeah, it simply, which... It simply would not have happened. And because that film got made, more movies about that side was a success. More movies about that subject got greenlit and eventually led to the point where, you know, you could you could have these arguments. And mm. it, it's always the thing, you know. It's... it's um, I, I got a long time ago, just a long story, but I got to talk to a lot of, like, sort of older black actors uh, who had done a bunch of black exploitation films and caught tons of shit for it. And, you know, they were like, this is the only opportunity we had to look at a camera and talk about our lives. And that opened the door for all kinds of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's deadly to judge anything and anyone from a, a previous time by today's standards. I think it's just 
Well, I, I got a I got a hot take for you then. Similarly, my thoughts on um, John Wayne as Genghis Khan. I mean, that's laughable by today's standards, but it's oh, a wait, yeah. terrible movie too. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> genuinely more, terrible. More, movie. more to the point, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, it's like, why don't we cast you know an an you know Asian? Why don't we cast a Mongolian actor for that? It's like you never would have seen that movie then. That movie would not have been made. Like simply right. just you know logistically. Terrible argument because that movie should never have been made. Well, let's uh, let's look at it this way because you know imagine if they had cast a, an Asian actor in that role, like that poor guy would have just died of cancer in twenty years. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Why do you want to kill Asian people? Yeah. So you know John Wayne, you know John Wayne taking the L on that one, like that's fine with me. But uh, yeah, yeah, staying at, <laughs> staying at home and acting in movies rather than going to you know. World War II. But um, no, there was yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so, but to go off um, Josh's point about like the black exploitation movies, like um, you know, that's why like those these genres and films which are seen as as trashy by the mainstream are like really pretty important because you know much like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, it's like you have like a you know you have like a a B picture borderline pornographic director coming in to with studio money and resources to make this extraordinary statement which is like so rare and like so delightful to see it's like kind of the same thing with like you know it's not like there weren't like awful like black exploitation pictures i mean yeah you got your occasional guy from harlem but yeah it's like you know you have black filmmakers and black actors like making movies about their own milieu and then you would have you know, obviously people would object to this and say, like, oh, this is such a negative portrayal of, like, black people and blah, blah. But it's like, you know, I mean, it's the same thing with, like, Freakin's Cruising. It's like, you know, uh, gay rights activists were so upset about this movie. And it's like, I'm sorry, there are some gay guys who like to fucking get fisted in basements. Yeah, it's like, and yeah, these people... These people deserve, like, you know, consideration as people with dignity. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're freaky, but freaks are important. I want to hear from the freaks. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to, like, marginalize and sweep that under the under the rug, then? Do you want to, like, mm-hmm. present a false narrative about what this community is? You know, you're, you're just marginalizing another group of people, a subcommunity within your own subcommunity. And that is, I mean, perfect example. That is, that is Billy Freakin trying to do something. You know, you can argue about whether or not he succeeded. You can argue about whether or not he failed so spectacularly that it ended up achieving the opposite goal. But his intention was fucking sincere with that movie. Cruising and, rules. I love it. Yeah, and, and like once it's out there, too, it's kind of out of your hands how people are going to react to it. You can just, you know, do mm-hmm. your best with whatever message you're trying to say. Yeah, and so... Um, Sorry, which, which I, by the way, I should, I should have. If you haven't, just um, if you know the film Cruising, just Google Dave Thomas uh, Cruising Gourmet for one of SCTV's greatest skits of all time. <laughs> <laughs> he does stuff to a chicken. Never mind. <laughs> Crisco wristwatch. Um, yeah. Well, um, I don't know if we've gotten off the point. I think it's relevant to the point. But um, oh, I've gotten off. All right. I, I just think. <laughs> <laughs> I the idea of trying to cram a Russ Meyer movie into a sort of 2021 sense of I mean because it's it's he's so far ahead of the curve he's so radical he's so unabashedly what he is um, you know that trying to judge him by any standards other than his own is just is just insane it's like the and, and even if you're I can't imagine I've never shown this movie to anybody who just didn't have their world just expanded <laughs> massively by seeing it 
But even if you're someone who looks at this film and goes, God damn it, this is everything that's wrong with the world. Stuff like Russ Meyer getting to make this movie, this all contributes to more outsiders being able to come in and, and present their visions to the world. And there, there is, there is a straight line from Russ Meyer getting to do Beyond the Valley of the Dolls to Shaka King getting to make a movie about Fred Hampton. And I can draw it. It would take two and a half hours, but it's really <laughs> fucking important to like, you know, even if you dismiss the specifics, even if you go, this movie's fucked up, this guy's a sexist pig and blah, blah, whatever you want to say. You have to own the fact that him getting in the door and getting to make this movie, this movie finding an audience, helped crack a system, uh, helped open it up to more interesting and diverse filmmakers, some of whom you actually like. <laughs> well, and the thing, too, like, if, you, if we're going to go by, like, um, you know, kind of like brain-dead, like, liberal media criticism standards, like, you, you can't you can't say that Russ Meyer just makes kind of like boilerplate, like misogynistic pornography. It's like, these are like really active female characters, like doing their own thing. Like, you know, fucking men over, like sometimes they're beating them up and killing them. It's like, it's... yeah. Tell me what's wrong with Tura Satana being a movie star. Tell me what's wrong oh with that. God. I don't care. I... No one can. You yeah, can't we, make that case. We just talked about um, we just talked about Astro Zombies and spent a lot of time on on Tora just because she's so. I mean, like she is a presence. Yeah, like once you've <clears throat> laid eyes on her, you will never forget her. <laughs> she's a, she's amazing, <clears throat> and imagine imagine you know some Hollywood director giving her a fucking break. It's just not happening. You know, Russ Meyer sees her and goes, "That's that's my Brando." <laughs> yeah, seeing her doing burlesque, being like, I, "This yeah. woman has my attention. This is what I yeah. want." She can rotate each titty separately. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, no, I think um, Josh, like you really hit on it, like why like uh, um, filmmakers like Meyer are so important, and I really have to agree with like um, you know people like John Waters who are always like gonna go to bat for the oh, people yeah. who are a little out of step. And, you know, I think this movie, like, and this is de this is 100% one of his favorite movies. Um, yep. You know, like, because if you look at where what this movie came out of, like Hollywood at the tail end of the 60s, the Hollywood that gave us the original Valley of the Dolls, which is like, like I said, has some camp value, but there's something so moribund about it, like compared to beyond the Valley of the Dolls, like, sure. uh, you know, the Valley of the Dolls is just like a pretty straightforward presentation of like a trashy book and beyond the Valley of the Dolls really like, is like, okay, you want trash? Well, let's just wallow in it, baby. Yeah, that's the same thing as, uh, like, Michael Haneke movies. It's like, oh, you want to see bad things happen to these characters? Well, ch fucking choke on it. Yes. Yeah, or, like, the um, the climax of Unforgiven, where it's like, you know, Clint Eastwood is like, oh, yeah, you want, you want to see me kick some fucking ass? Well, I'm going to give it to you. And you're just like, oh, God, I don't, I don't want this. This is horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else that we want to say about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? It's kind of something that you have to experience for yourself. I don't know if we've even scratched the surface. 
yeah, you you can't. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not I'm not kidding either. It's it's a you know every time I see it, it's one of those films, and this, this to me is the mark of a great film. It, I, I find something new in it. Uh, every time I show it to somebody new, they 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 love it. Um, it's it's uh, it's an incredible piece of work, and um, you know it's it's organic. It's organic to its director. It's organic to its writer. It just it flows from them. It's honest. It's real, and it's also insane. I mean, the great thing about it is that it's all those things, and yet it can completely appeal to a twenty twenty one sort of you know irony drenched you know millennial crowd. I would hope um, it's it's just a fucking masterpiece, and. It, it will never get its due. Even if, like, next year they give it an honorary Oscar, that's not enough. Well, I think there is a Criterion edition, if I'm not mistaken. There is. There is. And I, I hate to say this because I, I would love to, but um, there's also, an if you have an all-regions player, the Arrow video, uh, the Arrow Blu-ray is slightly better. Ah, and, you know, if you don't have... And I have both. <laughs> if you don't have an all-region DVD, DVD player... DVD and VHS... <laughs> Nice. A real fan. And, you know, honestly, if you're listening to the show and you don't have an all-region DVD player, <laughs> what are you even doing? Like, what the hell? But, you know, there's also uh, other ways of getting movies. That, uh, but here's the thing. They, they both yeah. have great supplements, and they're different. Like, you should just get them both. I mean, you can't go wrong. With the... Yeah, because yeah, speaking but... of John How Waters, covers your bases, uh, yeah. you can actually see John Waters uh, effusing about the movie, like, I think on the Criterion website. They went ahead and... Oh, but... Put up some of those yeah and, and the arrow one has a dvd of the seven minutes <laughs> which you oh, need to see wow. once. oh my yeah. god like that's like that that's what kills me it was like when um many 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 years ago when uh tim and i first started hanging out like he invited me over to watch um the rift tracks of troll 2 and he had a high definition copy of troll 2 that you know i forget what what channel he'd gotten it off of but i it, remember yeah yeah i remember saying to tim i was like oh my god like someone took the time to telecine this in high <laughs> def. that's amazing <laughs> it was an intern who le- wanted to learn how to do it i'm sure right right just like and, you're doing troll too fine you know that's the best troll too is is gonna look <laughs> <laughs> gotta say but um act like i will say beyond the valley of the dolls is an absolute feast for the eyes Oh God, it's so good looking. Yeah. It's so good looking. And so if you're just, I can't, you guys have a pretty cool crowd. If you're someone, and I, I will fight to the death for the second one. Uh, if you're a fan of, of the Austin Powers movies and you think they sprung full blown from Mike Myers' head, <laughs> and he doesn't pretend they do, I'm not knocking him, uh, you got to see this film. You've got to see this film. No, that's absolutely true. And I did see all three of those in the theater. Um, and The President's actually... Analyst. Have you guys done The President's Analyst yet? I haven't seen that. I've seen What's New Pussycat, which... Nah, nah. Okay, I'm, 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 if you'll have me, I'll come back. We'll do President's Analyst. It's an amazing film. I'd be into that. Um, You know, uh, Josh, we'll, we'll let you go. It can't do this. us any harm. can't do no. our career any harm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you... Oh, my friend, you don't understand. My entire podcast career is one long endeavor to destroy my day job. That's all I... That's awesome. Well, we're happy to help, yeah. <laughs> I, You know, like, real talk... Um, I can't speak for Tim, to be honest, but I do feel like my current endeavors are really, and, you know, everything I do on Twitter is really me just being like, yeah, let's see how unemployable I can make myself, because I don't, don't want a real job. I want to be well, a you know, artist. Hey, the same Russ Meyer at Notion, you just go go big or go home. 
exactly exactly right go big or go home home. um Um, you know i don't want to keep you too late but i did want to ask you about like a little bit of trivia that i found um because you were a friend of the man um did you know that harlan ellison worked on the script to the original valley of the dolls uh no i didn't we never discussed it yeah there was um apparently um that makes sense because he did the oscar yeah um just be a moribund uh 60s films but um which yeah. by the way available on blu-ray with an amazing commentary track from uh hang on, i'm trying to remember oh me <laughs> uh, and, and and oswald uh well well worth your time and it's a great film i believe it, it it's not a great film but the commentary track is <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's like Rift Tracks. Rift Tracks has elevated a lot of, uh, and Mystery Science Theater have eleva- elevated a lot of movies beyond their station. Oh, we're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you kids in your Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> <laughs> the show's been on for 30 years. Come on. Yeah. Um, we had, and I also say we had Jonah Ray on the movie show and Joe Dante spent 45 minutes just beating him up and Jonah was absolutely lovely and ended up winning Joe over. But a TV show where a bunch of people write scripted jokes at movies they think are beneath them, it just drives me fucking nuts. It's just... Ooh, oh, 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 no, I will argue. I I came at a guy on Twitter for expressing that same opinion because the thing is about... The he episode, was right. He was right. <laughs> now, the thing about the MST crew is that these are people who absolutely love movies. They wouldn't be doing what they did if they didn't love. And, you know, like the the, the guy who created Mystery Science Theater, Joel Hodgson, you know, know. he, he loves all those old movies. He loves I've, all those. I've, I've, I've had this argument with, with those gentlemen. But the, um, the uh, yeah, it, my, my, for me, Joe just hates the whole idea. Joe Dante, my co-host of the movies, maybe. For me, it's like... The fact that it's scripted is what is what does it for me. There's nothing funnier than sitting in a movie theater for a movie that turns out to be an absolute turkey and an audience is is you know having its way with the film. And people are coming up with stuff spontaneously that's absolutely hilarious. But the fact that there's a writer's room on those shows makes me insane. Ooh, man, the, 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 this is like the 60s generation gap, man. It's just like, it's all... It's, <laughs> you kids it's just don't understand. Um, no, but... Uh, Oh yeah, like I'm well, the fact that, you're, the fact that you would sit there with a joint in your hand for two hours, and I'm sitting here with tequila. It's like that's everything. That's it. That's all you need. Nah. No, but um, well, you know, maybe one of these days we'll introduce you to our very good friend Bill Corbett, who we have had on the show and who wrote for uh, Mystery Science Theater and was the second Crow T robot. But and th- and then you yeah, guys you can, two fight can fight while we egg you on. Yeah. Um, but no, like that tidbit about harlan ellison like apparently he had wanted the i guess like the original novel had a really downbeat ending which he wanted uh-huh. to keep and of course the studio wanted like you know the the mega happy ending and uh i guess ellison was so ticked off about it that he he was like take my name off this fucking movie and so, thus he's not credited well that, that, that would be harlan um, yeah, I don't know. I can't imagine Harlan adapting Jacqueline Suzanne. I ain't crazy. I mean, we only hung out for like 13 years, but that, that never came up. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I wouldn't blame him if he was like, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like, no, I was, I was curious about that. But, um, Josh, thank you so much for your time. This was really fun. No, it's a pleasure. I love, I love talking endlessly about movies. That... <laughs> you guys are great. You guys are great. It's a lot of fun. No, we really. But yeah, let's let's do President's Analyst. You guys need to see that.